The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. The Enviro Show it is here on SAFM. It's the Green Green Show here on SAFM. And uh, what we have tonight in the team tonight, we've got Kim Winter, we've got Garnet and Quinica, and I am Nancy Richards. Well, what we're going to start off with today is, uh, is our call to action story for tonight, and it's all around air, fresh air. Around the world, air pollution is getting so way out of hand. Apparently in Shanghai, an eight-year-old girl was recently diagnosed with lung cancer. Well, how are we doing here in South Africa? I wonder. I'm going to be talking to Professor Harold Anagon. He's uh, in the Department of Environmental Management at the University of Johannesburg. Then in our forage feature, we're going to be taking a look at rabbit meat as a sustainable source of protein. We'll be talking to a Cognelio rabbit farmer and uh, finding out whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. Amapico, after that, is a training academy looking at uh, stimulating creative solutions in Soweto. And we're going to be hearing from one of the participants. He's the founder of an organisation called Unconventional Media Solutions. He's Sifiso Ngobezi. And uh, in our green goodie feature, and don't forget this is at the op your opportunity if you're producing something or you have a service on offer that's particularly environmentally friendly, let us know. You can give us a call or pop us an email. I'll give you those details just now. But tonight in our green goodie feature, biodegradable food packaging. Could certainly solve a lot of disposal problems, as does uh, biodegradable disposable cutlery and plates. So we're going to be chatting to the founder of Green Home Products. He'll tell us all about it. But before any of that, uh, appetites were whetted, well certainly ours were, last week when we spoke to Chris Roach of Wilderness Safaris. And he's got another couple of really super eco-destinations up his sleeve, so listen in for that if you fancy going somewhere really fab and with good clean fresh air. And don't forget if you want to join in and share, you can have a chat, ask your questions, 0892 10 2010 is the number, 08. 9210-2010. Our email is enviro at safm.co.za and if you want to find us on Facebook with all the details, it's uh, The Enviro Show on SAFM. Just a quick bit of eco-info to uh, start us off. Big cheers to the Green Pop Peeps who will be planting 450 fruit trees in Kailicha. That's happening on April the 17th. This sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Lots of shade, lots of fruit, all good things. And if you'd like to join in and be part of the planting thereof, you can sign up to be a volunteer. Got to do it by tomorrow, though. Uh, the email is roxanne at greenpop.org, roxanne at greenpop.org. And as we're always on the look for creative green ideas here on the Enviro Show, here's a good one to uh, cut down on consumerism. In Berlin, there's a man by the name of Nikolai Wolfert, or Wolfert, who came up with the idea of starting a borrowing shop. And he, he says he calls it a library of useful things. He's been open since June 2012, and you can pretty much go in there and borrow anything. But it seems the most borrowed item is an electric drill, because, he says, most people who own one only ever use it for an average of 13 minutes in their lifetime. Very expensive 13 minutes, so there you go. And just lastly, in a minute, we're going to be chatting about air pollution across the world. So how's this? A Beijing artist has decided to auction off a jar of fresh air from a business trip in Provence in France as a form of artistic protest against his smoggy city. Well, the rubber sealed jar of mountain air went for 5,250 yuan or $860, it was reported. And he says that air should be the most valueless commodity, free to breathe for any vagrant or beggar. 
This is my way, he says, to question China's foul air and express my dissatisfaction. Well, there you go. Very expensive expression. But nonetheless, I think we guess where he's going. You're listening to The Enviro Show. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. Well, staying in Beijing, or certainly staying in China, I read recently that they have coined the term environmental immigrants to describe, or environmental refugees, to describe the huge and growing number of Chinese people who are escaping their polluted cities, where the fine particulate matter can apparently reach 40 times the World Health Organization exposure limit. And they're going in search of what they now call the luxury of sunshine, good air, and good water. Sure. Well, earlier we also read that millions of vulnerable people in southern England and Wales were advised to stay indoors as a result of unusually high air levels of air pollution smothering London and other cities. And, um, and also that recently in Brussels and Paris, they were offering free public transport to cut down on the very high levels of, uh, of pollution as a result of just way too many cars. Well, South Africa hasn't yet suffered those, um, what one journalist describes as hazardous smog blankets. But nonetheless, we do have a very heavy dependence on a few fossils, so maybe it's just a matter of time. Well, with us on the line, we have Professor Harold Anagon, and he is a professor in the Department of Geography, Environmental Management and Energy Studies at uh, UJ, University of Johannesburg. And he would know a thing or two because he's been working in the field of air pollution for 25 years with an area of specialization, particularly in particle air pollution in townships. Professor, uh, Professor Anagon, nice to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Well, good evening. 25 years in the, in the business of air pollution. When t- 25 years ago, I don't suppose it was as big, a situa- as big a problem as it is now. Was it something that was quite specialist back in those days? Uh, the basic problems that we faced 25 years ago are unfortunately exactly the same problems that we're facing in terms of air quality challenges in South Africa today, which is the inhalation of particles and smoke emitted from domestic coal burning. And uh, I remember standing up in 1984 and uh, young scientists uh, challenging the then Minister of the Environment, who was concerned with power station emissions, and I said, but what about the obvious issue of township pollution? And uh, I'm afraid uh, we're still living with that same problem and haven't progressed greatly since then. Hopefully, though, it's a little bit more concerned, perhaps, than it was then. But you say we're living with the same problem. Is it the same level of problem, or has it worsened? Um, I believe that it's uh, it's more or less uh, the, the same magnitude. The, the odd thing is it's improved slightly due to any air pollution control, but uh, because of a generational change, uh, older folk were used to lighting coal fires and cleaning out the grid, and... Uh, I believe that the younger generation are not so enthusiastic about performing the chores of cleaning out the morning ash from the coal fire and are more inclined to uh, uh, use modern uh, cleaner forms of energy such as electricity. The challenge that we faced then and we thought we had the magic uh, solution was to electrify all the historically uh, black residential areas. And um, Eskom did a magnificent job in electrifying the townships long before the transformation of 94 and uh, and after. And despite the fact that the townships are largely electrified, the cost of electricity is such that for heating purposes in winter, uh, households still uh, need to prefer to use coal for heating. 
and uh, you referred to the blanket of smog over Paris and Beijing, mm. and certainly those episodes covered the entire cities, and we think that we live in quite a nice clean environment in most parts of Johannesburg, uh, neglecting the fact that uh, in small islands of air pollution over the, the townships are quite as bad as the air pollution levels recently measured in Beijing and Paris. Really? For, for, two, for two to three months a year, mm. the air pollution levels, perhaps not 40 times, but certainly six or seven times the World Health Organization uh, uh, levels that are considered safe for human breathing. Can you just explain the term particulate then to us? I mean, 40 times the level of uh, fine particulate that the, the, the World Health Organization specifies is, is acceptable. Just explain that particulate. Okay. What we're referring to are the particles of smoke when one combusts coal or wood for that matter. Uh, the smoke, the visible smoke that we see is mostly uh, little droplets of organic matter, carbon, hydrogen, uh, compounds similar to cigarette smoke, but in much larger quantities, they are emit, uh, emitted into the atmosphere. And it, uh, it is not dust, as dust is what we get from roadways and mine dumps. These particles from fires are the very fine particles that float in the air for quite a long time, and uh, during winter nights, they get trapped close to the ground, and the wind is, uh, has died down. So during the night, these particles accumulate in a shallow layer, a blanket of smog, uh, overlying the areas where the coal is being burned. So these little particles can penetrate deep into the lung, be absorbed into the body, and uh, uh, over the long term cause diseases. They can aggravate uh, upper and lower respiratory infections that will particularly affect young children and perhaps uh, elderly who already uh, are beset by other breathing problems. Yes, well, as we just heard there, I think it was somewhere in China, in Shanghai, in fact, a child as young as eight developed lung cancer. And, you know, that's an indication because we're talking about these smog blankets, these visible displays, if you like, of, um, of pollution, but very often... We don't see pollution. It's only when you really see it that, that uh, people get frightened and wake up to it. For, for a large part of the time, we don't see it. We just inhale it and don't necessarily know. Well, there are, are many pollutants, gas pollutants, that are invisible and that we're not aware of. But this, the smoke is certainly a, a, a visible manifestation. But uh, the, the cancer, although it's, it makes a dramatic news story, is is an isolated fact. What is far more common is uh, upper and lower respiratory illnesses. Now, I've, uh, I'm a very clever professor because I've been studying this for 25 years, but I can assure you that every mother of a child in Soweto knows that the smog is bad for a child and will aggravate uh, uh, chest problems and wheezing and coughing uh, during the winter period. She doesn't need a, a scientist to come and tell her that this air is unhealthy and affecting her child. Yeah. Affecting her child, um, certainly in terms of respiratory problem, TB, asthma, or wheezing, coughing, all those things, could it be equally affecting their brains? We, we know that lead inhalation can have a very damaging effect. Is this also something that might be damaging young brains? Um, not directly in the sense of lead causing a poisoning, but what it does do is that a child that is chronically ill during the, uh, the, the early childhood period one to three or four years old, 
their physical and mental development are retarded due to the uh, constant health problems. So it is a built-in liability for the rest of their life that they're not following a normal development path. And and this is part of the long-term tragedy. It's not that everybody who inhales the smoke is automatically going to get sick. But on average, the the young children are retarded in their their mental and their physical development due to the uh, chronic respiratory illnesses, which after diarrheal diseases, is the next most common cause of uh, of uh, childhood uh, deaths due to illness. Mm. Just going back to the Chinese situation, which I suppose is something that we should be watching warily, making sure that we don't go that route as well. I believe you have, you, yourself, you have guests staying with you from Beijing. And I think that you've also talked about a study that's happening in Mongolia that makes what's happening in Beijing look like um, Toy Town, relatively. Uh, well, yes, I've uh, recently been in Beijing, and indeed, on a on a smog day, you can uh, barely see the uh, look out of your hotel room and barely see across the road. But um, my colleagues who've travelled to uh, Ulaanbaatar, to the capital of Mongolia, tell me that the uh, levels of particle concentrations in Ulaanbaatar uh, have frequently uh, reached levels of uh, one or two thousand. The episodes in Paris and uh, Beijing that have caused this or triggered your your discussion today were five to eight hundred, and then uh, Mongolia regularly in winter again in coal burning poorer areas are reaching one or two thousand. So it is, is really the wor- the worst polluted capital city in the world. So what's to be done? It seems that coal is the baddie. I mean, you know, so often we see pictures of people in China wearing face masks. Is it going to come to it? Is it going to come to it that we all have to, if you're living in a city, that we have to wear masks? Or can we do something about it? What, in your view, is the solution? Well, firstly, we're unlikely to reach that situation in Johannesburg from traffic because we are in a very well-ventilated city. But in the uh, coal-burning areas, yes, they could be very well be wearing masks or, or, already. And um, uh, Nancy, I'd like to correct the perception that's coal. It's very often the perception that coal is bad, coal is dirty. And uh, in fact, it's not the coal per se. We have developed in our laboratory and elsewhere with colleagues clean burning stoves that don't emit high levels of smoke. Mm. So it's, it's the fuel and the stove need to be matched to each other. So in fact, if you take a very big stove, it's actually called a power station and Eskom runs many of them, the coal is burned very, very efficiently, and with the filters, they put very, very little relatively particle matter into the air. So, yes, uh, the power stations do emit sulfur dioxide, which is one of the invisible pollution, but in terms of particles into the air, Eskom power stations are very clean, which demonstrates it's not the fuel, because they're burning exactly the same coal in the power stations as we burn in the townships. It's having the right type of stove matched to the right sort of fuel, and that is uh, the central work of our sustainable technology and research laboratory at the University of Johannesburg to design a affordable uh, domestic coal stove uh, or wood stove that uh, can be used in the townships to substitute for the uh, current uh, uh, very inefficient devices. Mm. Of course, we would love everybody to be able to afford uh, clean uh, energy like electricity or LPG gas, which is on the national energy agenda as a long-term strategy. But in the meanwhile, um, there, there are people out there 
uh, who need to cook food every night and to heat their homes in winter that are using the affordable fuel available in poorly designed devices. Kevin, is there anywhere, uh, do you have a website where people can read more about those affordable domestic coal stoves? Uh, not at the moment, no. Oh, that's a pity. Uh, yeah. Well, hopefully you'll keep us posted because I, it feels like it's quite a good idea. Just lastly, we were reading earlier about um, the planting of 450 fruit trees in Kailicha. Are trees a solution? I mean, don't they absorb nasty things? Um, it's a beautiful myth. Uh, I mm. love trees and I lo- love forests, and they do uh, breathe in carbon dioxide. That is what mainly what the wood is made from and, and release oxygen. But in terms of um, uh, filtering out pollution, uh, it's a myth. The study which related this was done by a, a scientist doing indoor air pollution uh, as a minor study in the U.S., about 40 years ago, and it's such a beautiful story that uh, you should fill your office with plants and will remove all pollutants, that this, report, this has become urban legend that uh, merely planting trees per se is a means of uh, controlling pollution. The, me- the essence of controlling pollution is to reduce it at source by, uh, uh, by reducing the amount that is, is put into the air, and there are many technologies and uh, modern techniques difficulty we have is a legacy of, uh, of older technology, which we can't just turn off. So, for instance, if we turn off all the uh, power stations with which were built with 1970 technologies, we'd have no electricity at all. And uh, this is a challenge that we're facing at the moment to say, should we spend money to, uh, very expensive money to clean up our existing power stations at the end of their lifetime? which would make electricity 10 to 12% more expensive, or should we concentrate just a tenth of that money to clean up township pollution and get a much better health improvement for the population? It's a debate that's going on at the moment and also one of the topics of our research. Professor, thank you very much. I think, well, there's a question. I think if you'd like to give us a buzz and and tell us what you think is the right answer to that question, we would be delighted. Professor Harold Anagon, Professor of Department of uh, Geography, Environmental Management and Energy Studies at UJ. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Good night. Good night. And hopefully he will keep us posted with the, the, you know, whether or not those affordable domestic coal stoves could happen. And I think... uh, Possibly the way to go is to is to work at both things in tandem. I, I, I can't think that, uh, you know, we can just take one route. If all, doing, all these things are just got to be worked on together. If you've got thoughts, let us know. 0892 10 0892 10 2010. Well, we're moving from smoggy cities and uh, polluted cities into the wilds because you might remember that uh, last week, We spoke to Chris Roach, he's with Wilderness Safaris, and he had some very, very tempting fresh air wilderness projects to share with us. He talked about Bale Mountain Lodge and Pafuri Walking Safaris in particular, they stay with me. So having asked him to share his top five, we only gave him room for a couple, so we thought we would just give him space for a couple more. Got him on the line. Hi, Chris. Evening, Nancy. Thanks. Hi. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes. Well, we were so tempted by what you were telling us last week. We thought we'd just give you an opportunity because we asked you for the, your big five, and I think you've got a couple more. So tell us, tell us where they are. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, we can start in Zimbabwe. I think this is, uh, you know, obviously it's had its uh, very well publicised challenges over the last decade, mm. and uh, plenty of sensationalism. People love to tell a bad story about about the country, but it's actually um, it's actually not the case. I mean. Um, 
uh, we've been operating there nearly 20 years now, and the last 10 have been spectacular in terms of um, wildlife uh, recovery uh, and, and ecotourism in general. So one of the places that I love and where we operate is in uh, South Nwangi National Park. Sorry, uh, you, you, you clipped off there in what, what national park? Oh, uh, Wangi National oh, Park. Oh, Wangi National Park. Yeah, south of, well, between Bulawayo and Vic Falls, if okay. you like, on the Botswana. And um, we operate a camp there called Little Makalolo, which um, which is spectacular. I, I love it from the point of view of, you know, you're talking about this very vast landscape. But uh, where there's a fantastic mix of species. So all of the stuff people would know from the Kruger, but with far greater abundance of what as South Africans regard as rarities, species like sable and roan, antelope, um, the eland, and so on. So it's it's uh, got a, an incredibly high elephant population around the waterholes in the dry season. You get massive concentrations of game in general, but it's just thrilling to see this uh, this mix of species, even some that are more associated with with uh, the arid Kalahari like Schimsbok and uh, red hartebeest that find their way into this uh, this system, which is on the edge of the Kalahari Sand. Chris, can I, can I just uh, deviate for one moment here? Uh, little Makalolo, what's the rhino population in Zimbabwe? Are they suffering as much sort of rhino poaching as the, we are down here? And yeah. what, what are their policies like? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Look, I think when the uh, when the rhino poaching epidemic first started in, in southern Africa, it really was first... Uh, noticeable in, in Zimbabwe, and I think this was 2008, and it went from losing no rhino to 80 rhino or 60 rhino that year. So, And then the next year, 2009, it was as bad, and then it's then it's all shifted into South Africa. So Zimbabwe at the moment only, I mean, it's tragic, of course, but in, in, in comparison to the South African numbers, Zimbabwe was losing a handful a year at the moment. So their, their policy has been pretty successful, I think, and also it's helped, obviously, that uh, the main focus has helped them, that the main focus has shifted to higher concentrations in the Kruger National Park. Look, that said, there are very low concentrations of rhino in Wangi. Um, the numbers are confidential, obviously, and the exact distribution is confidential, but they're, they're very low numbers. Mm. There are higher rhino numbers elsewhere in the country. Mm. You know, speaking of which, though, we did reintroduce, um, I think, 12 there. Uh, well, it was probably about seven or eight years ago. And... Um, you know, we have unfortunately lost some of those to, to poaching. Um, but that's, I mean, it's, it's a good point because it, it touches on the, the way that ecotourism can work with national parks and particular agencies to, to aid conservation management and conservation in general. And uh, other projects we're involved in there are things like uh, anti-poaching patrols, de-snaring, uh, uh, water provision research and, and so on. So that's that's kind of why I like Zimbabwe, and it's 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 uh, very accessible from South Africa. Everyone gives Bike Bridge a bad uh, rap, but it's it's actually not bad at all if you're driving through. And if you're desperate to avoid it, you can go through Botswana and across at Panda Matenga into Northern Wangi. And your other one that you had is in Namibia, and this is actually a, a rhino success story, fortunately. Um, and now I'm nervous to give the location, actually, <laughs> given the. No, it's a uh, it's a it's a part of Damaraland and the Kokofelt in, in Namibia, a massive area called the Palmwach Concession, where we operate a camp called Desert Rhino Camp, and it's uh, it's a partnership with Save the Rhino Trust, which is the NGO that's probably uh, sort of single-handedly responsible for for saving black rhino in, in wild in, in Namibia, and. Um, 
So we've we've done a sort of joint venture camp where we cover their costs of monitoring and, and what have you, pay a, a, a levy or fee to Bedmart, and in return and support their, obviously their tracking staff, and in return our guests get to join them on um, on rhino monitoring you know, walks and, and tracking in, in what is a spectacularly vast and stark desert um, with a surprising abundance of, of large mammals. The, the wonderful as they sound, are they very expensive relative to what we offer here in South Africa? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I suppose. Rel- uh, I mean, relative factoring to in the cost of going to Zim or N- Namibia, um, are they, they they're more or less expensive than something equivalent in South Africa? Um, probably on a par. Of course, you do have the, the cost to go there, um, but so even if the costs are on a par, it's 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 a difference between having a um, you know, a weekend escape uh, in the low felt or in the northwest or uh, in, on the garden, for argument's sake, um, uh, and uh, and in a relatively small environment as opposed to getting away into a genuine wilderness uh, um, atmosphere, environment, functioning ecosystem, all of those sorts of things. So it's, um, you know, I suppose it's uh, oh, everything in life. You, you, um, you get what you pay for, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, um, just recapping then, Wangi National Park, Little Makololo, and the other one, sorry, I didn't catch the name, it was in Namibia. was uh, a Drino camp, and it's in Namibia. And to get back onto that, that notion of price, I mean, obviously the perception of South Africans in general is that, uh, you know, high-end ecotourism camps are accessible only to foreigners. It's a bit like buying a house in Clifton, you, you know, you must come from the UK. But... Um, uh, it's what, we, what we've done in order to circumvent that is to start a residence program for people who are resident in Africa in general, but specifically Southern Africa. And um, for a, a, you know, what we regard as a small fee, which is a, a joining fee, which goes to our, our Children in the Wilderness Foundation that does uh, rural edu- education for rural children, um, you then get access to a, a club, if you like, that uh, where you can get discounts of certainly more than 60% uh, booked at, at short lead times uh, from travel. So it's it's not unaffordable. It's mm. it's actually very accessible. And uh, if people are looking to discover something outside of South Africa, it's, uh, it's certainly an option. Well, we're going to leave it at that, Chris, but thank you very much. And it's been really interesting to hear all these different places. Perhaps at a later stage we'll get you back again and tell us about some more of these wonderful goodie places. I think probably the best thing to do, we're going to put those up on our Facebook page, both of the, the ones yes. that you mentioned. But uh, if people check into your website, which is wilderness-safaris.com, wilderness-safaris.com, <clears throat> they can see the whole gamut of uh, products that you've got on offer. Yeah, thanks very Lovely. much, Nancy. Yeah, South Africans in particular could look at um, uh, wilderness-residence.com or dot, and that, that'll give you uh, how to join that uh, that club. Okay, wilderness-residence. Residence, as in the plural of a resident. Okay, excellent. Super, thank you very much. That was Chris Roach. He wrote, he's with uh, Wilderness Safaris. And if you'd like to check it out, it's wilderness-residence. That's R-E-S-I-D-E-N-T-S. And you're listening to the Enviro Show here on SAFM. Do we not ever get around? Even though we sit here in the studio, I feel sometimes that we travel. Well, next we're going to travel to um, green fields where there are rabbits leaping, frolicking in uh, in the fields because that's what we're going to be talking about in our forage feature. And our forage feature, just FYI, in case you haven't heard it before, it's the, the space where we, we take a look at different foods and how they're produced, whether they're sustainable, the whole field fork story, the nutritional value, etc. 
And today the food in question is rabbit. And with me in the studio I have John Falk. He's the director of Coniglio Rabbit Meat Farm. And he's got a, a brown cardboard box here on the table. And I'm just wondering, there are no little holes in it. I'm wondering if a rabbit's going to leap out like a, a rabbit out of a hat. But uh, obviously not. It's looking very quiet in that box. Nice to have you, John. Thank you very yeah, much. So, um, yeah, right. We're going to be right back. Stay with us. Hey, what's up, y'all? My name is Tevin Campbell, and right now, you're listening to SAFM. South Africa's news and information leader. The Enviro Show. The Enviro Show it is where we just had to do a quick adjustment of the microphone. So, John Falk, lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much. So, clearly, it's not a live rabbit you've got in that box. No, no. no. Okay, fair not. enough. So, you have got a rabbit farm. Tell us where your rabbit farm is. It's called Coniglio. It's where and how many rabbits are you farming? Uh, Nancy, we're based in Durbanville. Um, we have about 400 breeding animals and we have about five, 6,000 breeding animals across the country, mostly in the Western Cape, and uh, we've start starting to set up in Northwest um, Gauteng side with about 25 farmers already farming actively. It, it sounds sort of niche, I, you know. I'm, I can't remember what the statistics are for how many we, chickens we have uh, being bred in this country, but it sounds like it's it's quite niche. I understand that South Africans are not big on rabbit because they just it's not part of our, our history of meat eating. Is it something that you're looking to encourage? And are you looking to encourage it so that people can buy rabbit meat? Or is it is it a, a, a particularly sustainable type of meat? Um, Nancy, it's very sustainable. Um, we are definitely looking for people to buy rabbit meat, mm. um, as you've mentioned. Um, we've basically created a platform so it, we can farm rabbits. Um, we are looking to increase the amount of animals that we farm with. Um, it is a niche market at the moment. Uh, it's the first market that we tackle. It's the only way we can start uh, the rabbit revolution. Um, and it's already gone past the no return. Okay, rabbit revolution. So you are thinking yeah, big. That's right. The sustainable. Um, you know, I was talking there about you know frolicking rabbits on on lovely green lawns. But is it like that? Is no, it? it's not. That's no, what okay. everybody would like mm. to see. Uh, the hard reality is, it's not possible to farm rabbits in that number or quantities in a field. Um, we have one or two of those projects, um, and there has been um, farms that farm. Um, free range, but rabbits pick up disease when they share the same floor space with other animals, and that's one of the key things um, to protect the rabbit and make sure it stays healthy for a for a very long time. Um, so no, green fields um, is not an option for commercial rabbit farming. I'm sure you don't really want to answer this question, but can we just talk about disease for a moment? Because yes. I think in Australia, I think, you know, rabbit is a dirty word. Was it mixed Rabbit is a or? dirty word. Mm. Rabbit has become a pest due to the fact that they multiply like so rabbits. So quickly, yeah. Yes, so, so quickly. So I, I know they organise special hunts and they've got special um, chemicals to control the rabbits. That's also why there's a, uh, a regulation you don't allow to import or export live rabbit animals from one country to another there's also a very nasty disease that was man-made to control these animals and should this go abroad or come to us um, it could harm it could harm some of the industries um, in a very bad way 
Do we have enough rabbits, you know, hopping around here in South Africa for, for it to be an issue? Um, How many no, rabbit farmers have no, we got? No, I don't think yeah. so. The rabbit farmers are controlling the animals. We're also responsible with the way that we place the rabbits to the rabbit farmers. So, so we basically at the moment control the rabbit farmer as well. Uh, when he stops farming and if he does, um, there's a regulation or a rule or by agreement um, per contract that say that he needs to bring all his rabbits in for slaughter. In that way, we can be responsible knowing what is going to happen with those rabbits and they don't end up at the SPCA or in the news or in a box um, at, um, at the end of the day. Why are they then more sustainable than other meats? And we know that you know beef can be extremely uh, can be extremely thirsty to to produce beef, and, and you know there's all sorts of issues. Um, rabbits are sustainable because why? A rabbit sustainable because first of all they produce seven times more meat than any other farmed animal in the same time. Um, the footprint that's required to produce this is way 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 smaller than than what. What normally would in in what in terms of feed in terms in of terms, water in terms space? of space okay in terms of space so on a relatively small farm or a holding one could easily farm with four hundred or a thousand rabbits um, obviously it needs to comply with the with the rules and regulations um, on on that uh, zoned property um, so sustainability is definitely something that a lot of meat can be produced in a very small space. So it makes it an ideal um, uh, animal for small farmers to produce. Yes, it does. It also makes an ideal animal for um, existing farmers that needs to add or wants to add okay. a second or third. Their... Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Small, um, you know, because they breed like rabbits, you would, I would imagine, and you would have to comply with how many rabbits you can have per square. It's about the intensive feeding Meeting. of animals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you need to have agricultural land to have um, that amount of quantity of rabbits um, to make it sustainable for yourself, first of all. Um, so the key is volumes and numbers. How do you keep the numbers down if they breed so quickly? We've got a system that we utilize for ourselves and for our farmers. Um, we have a certain amount of cages that's allocated to a farmer and a quota and the farmers need to stick to that quota. In that way we can control the amount of breeding animals and we know exactly uh, what offspring or follow followers, as we call it, is going to be produced. In that way we can plan ahead for um, slaughter facilities, uh, freezing space, uh, marketing, etc. Are there rabbits, rabbits and rabbits? I mean, if somebody is thinking of, of starting up, uh, you know, a supplementary to on their farm or even if they've got a small holding, thinking of having rabbits, are there, um, are there particular strains of rabbit that are good? Yeah. Are there particular, or the different species? There's definitely a special meat rabbit type. There's mostly mm. two types. Uh, the one's called a Californian um, white and we get the New Zealand white. And those two rabbits are meat race rabbits. Um, they are basically specifically bred for meat. Um, they grow quickly, the mothers nurse the young well, the, uh, the mothers have got a lot of milk, um, and the producing capa capability is <laughs> like rabbits. Mm. Yeah. Where do you sell? Who buys it? Because, you know, um, well, we all know the, the, the story about Watership Down and the movie, yeah, and, you know, you've yeah. seen the movie, now eat the cast, that sort of thing. But is it, is, is it something that you sometimes package and call it something different? No, or are that's you, the nice do you have thing to about be... rabbit. Apart from... <clears throat> Apart from the fact that people would not want to eat a bunny, mm. um, um, the product itself has got so many 
um, pluses, and I can quickly name a few for you. Mm, um, nutritionally? Nutritionally. Okay. Uh, it's not just nutritionally. Um, um, it would be um, environmentally, um, natural reasons, um, the quality of, of the product itself. There's a lot of myths going around about rabbits. Um, and then also the World Health Organization is stating that it is uh, the leanest meat that can be consumed. Uh, the USDA, which is the US, um, United States Department of Agriculture, um, after a great deal of research, said that the most nutritious meat available to mankind. Um, now, these are things that you cannot ignore. There's a lot of clever people that did a lot of extensive testing and um, theses and research on rabbits. It's amazing to see what you can find on the internet about rabbits. And broadly, if you look at all these things, um, it is definitely a plus. If we if we look at the nutritional reasons, first of all, um, a rabbit meets high in protein. Um, it's something 22% on average. If you compare it to chicken, it's about 20%. And goes all the way down to pork, which could be about 16%. Um, it's low in fat. Um, our product, or whole core product, a rabbit, is approved by the Heart Foundation. So our product carries the heart mark as a whole, the whole carcass. It's less than 10% fat, it's 8.5% fat. You're doing a good selling job here, I have to say, and I think that you also offer courses. In fact, I think there yeah. are a, a number of places where you can yeah. do a course because it, it's it's not just having a whole bunch of rabbits. You, you've got to slaughter them in a particular yes. way. You've got to prepare the meat in a particular way, I imagine, and you have a whole range of products, including uh, rabbit sausages, rabbit bacon, I see roasting rabbit. Um, is, is it the, the, the one-day course you offer is 5,000 Rand? What would you learn? Basically what we do is we offer the opportunity um, for someone to learn whether they want to start on a bigger scale or a small scale to get the information on how to breed with rabbits. We support them, we set them up, we provide a breeding stock uh, in, in that course um, for the 5,000 Rand and then we do the practical and show them exactly what to do. Then they can experience what is needed and what are they getting themselves into. First of all, we show them this huge setup of rabbits so they know exactly where they need to go to and where they need to start. And then it's up to the farmer to decide. Are they adding three does to trial or teach the kids something responsible? Or is it a farmer who just wants to do a trial with 30 rabbits to make a more educated decision? And then most of us farmers start with 100 or 200 rabbits. Mm. And most farmers starting are normal, regular farmers farming with cattle or grains, um, adding a second or third do you income s Do source. you see people's, I mean, let's, let's get to the other end, you know, the, the plate end, do you see that people's habits are changing? As, uh, elsewhere in Africa, is there a move towards rabbit? I think if you look at different cultures, everybody, all, all the different cultures has got a different view. Um, if you look at Italian, um, um, French people, I mean, rabbits like chicken. Mm -hmm. in, in their country. Um, our French cook, Nadej, um, told me um, many times, John, have you ever seen a over, oversized or a fat Frenchman? You don't. It's because of all the rabbit that they consume. Um, so all these things add up and if you look at the, why you should eat rabbit meat, it's new, it's niche, it's something nice for South Africans to try. Uh, there would be one out of ten people who would not try it. Well, there we go. We're going to leave it at that. I'm going to give out your website. If you're feeling moved to take up rabbit farming, this is the place to go. Check the site. It's Coniglio, which is C-O-N-I-G-L-I-O 
www.webs.com. We'll put that up on our Facebook page. Uh, Cornelio.co.za. Oh, .co.za, yeah. okay. That's uh, the farmer's website, and okay. um, the marketing website is simply buyrabbitmeat.co.za. It doesn't get more simple than that. No, buyrabbitmeat.co.za. There we go. Buyrabbitmeat.co.za. If it tickles your fancy, maybe that's the way to go. That was our forage feature for today. John Falk, thank you very much. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, director of Coniglio Rabbit. And, uh, or check that, uh, their site, coniglio.webs.co.za or buyrabbitmeat.co.za. SFM celebrates 20 years of inspiration. Since the independence of Ghana under Kwame Nkrumah, no country in Africa has successfully adhered to the principles of a constitutional democracy except this, our country, South Africa. Let us all reflect on how our freedom was achieved. SFM, South Africa's news and information leader. The Enviro Show. Well, now that you're all nicely thinking, Rabbit, let me move you on to Red Bulls, the Red Bull Amapico Academy. It's a 10-day academy, which is uh, taking place in Soweto in Joburg. In fact, it's currently underway. And its mission is to give wings, as they say, to pioneers who are using their talents, creativity and energy to solve social problems and make a change in their communities. Also to inspire a broader audience to do the same. Well, someone who's undergoing that course right now is Siviso Ngobezi, and he is the founder of something that he calls Unconventional Media Solutions. And what they do is they provide transport for township recyclers by combining advertising and pedal power. Well, let's, uh, let's find out from Safiso what this is all about. Hi, Safiso. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm Nancy, and I'm well. Thank you very much. Uh, Safisa, just tell us firstly, the Amapico Academy, is this the first time you're, you're with the Academy and is it nearly finished? I think it finishes on Sunday, the course. Yeah, so it finishes on Sunday. Uh, it's the first time that it's been launched um, and uh, the beauty about the whole thing is that it's been launched in SA. You know, so this is where the pilot project has been initiated. Okay, well, what a, so, what a great... Yeah, great... so it's been an awesome program in the sense that... Um, the guys have been giving us uh, platforms for us to just to grow our wings in terms of our project as social entrepreneurs. But it sounds like, uh, you know, it's not somewhere that you are going to learn how to come up with good ideas because you've already come up with a good idea. Uh, so I think it's that way. You know, it's not that they are teaching you how to come up with good ideas because you have already got a good idea. So you've gone yeah. to them to look at ways of, of growing your project. No, 100%. Uh, so I think most of us, um, you know, are in the phase where we just, just move from the beyond the the concept phase. You know, so the guys, I think they just want to, you know, support us in terms of what we're doing and um, just provide resources uh, in terms of us propelling our, our concepts and our initiatives in terms of growing them further. So it's just, uh, yeah, most of the guys have already are uh, in the field in terms of what they're doing. And um, I think Red Bull is coming in in a sense that uh, um, how do we, how do they rather, in terms of make it grow to a, to another level? Okay, it's one of the criteria for getting accepted on this course that you have obviously that you've got a good creative idea. But is it very environmentally concerned? Uh, excuse me, uh, is it? Sorry, I didn't get that. So the... do, do they particularly want your projects to be environmentally concerned as well as creative? Not necessarily. Okay. It's all about in terms of uh, what's your contribution to the society. So 
my project, it's more, um, um, I just speak for myself, it's more in terms of, you know, contributing to the environment and also just in contributing to uh, waste collectors. Um, so for in my case, it's a bit, it's a two-edged sword. So it just it does more in terms of uh, more beyond the environment, but it also touches people's lives. But uh, there are projects that's basic that um, you know just helping kids in terms of uh, empowering skills in terms of art, in terms of uh, skateboarding, in terms of soccer and so forth. Okay. So it's it, it's a diverse um, collection. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a diverse range of skills. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about your project, Unconventional Media Solutions Township Recyclers. Combining advertising and pedal power, explain. Okay, sure. So Unconventional Media is an innovative media company, but we've just recently launched um, a new, an initiative which has a, which has social relevance. So it's called Abo Macharesa. So Abo Macharesa is essentially a township slang, which means um, hustlers. Okay. You know, so yeah, so um, which basically means that. Um, oh. Just drop the line. I was just about to try and get him to say that word once again. And whatever it was, it means hustlers. And we're, we're going to get Sifiso back on the line. But let me just tell you a little bit more about the Red Bull Amapiko Academy. And as Sifiso says, how wonderful that they are launching it right here in South Africa. But we are known to have really good creative ideas. So maybe that's why they've done it. But if you'd like to find out more about what it's all about, maybe you've got a project that you'd like to uh, sign up for. This is clearly their pilot project, but uh, I'm sure they'll be doing more. And it's uh, the website is amapico.redbull.com, amapico.redbull.com. Sifiso, go back to telling us about the hustling thing. Just tell us what that word was again. Oh, yeah, sure. So the, the guys who collect um, uh, recyclable waste, they're called abomajereza. So, which essentially means hustlers. So, and the way we view them uh, at unconventional media solutions is that um, this guys truly identify with the word hustler, hustling, because they wake up early in the morning um, just to go back, just to go to your your rubbish bin, my rubbish bin, to collect recyclable waste, and um, you know, just to for them just to put bread on the table. And uh, we, we, just, we just for us, we decided that we need to be involved in the project in the sense that like. You know, we need to create um, durable and functional carts that the guys can use to collect um, their waste. You know, and but uh, the beauty about the whole project is that you know, when I invite companies um, to put their brands on the carts and advertise, so so and that's how when I empower the guys. You know, so it's it, it's it's an advertising platform, but uh, it's got so much social relevance mm-hmm. in our community. So anybody would be proud to have their 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 brand on your cart because then that you know they're not they're sort of putting their money where their mouths are. Is that where you're getting your revenue from from the sponsorship? No, hundred percent. So and if you think about it, uh, in the city of Johannesburg, there's about eight thousand uh, reclaimers in the country in, in the city of Johannesburg, and um, and if you think about it in terms of brand exposure. You know, uh, if you have 8,000 reclaimers in, the, in, in Johannesburg, this is where you, your brand can be exposed. Um, so in terms of, uh, so the thinking is that, you know, if you want to get your brand out there, you know, if you want to tell a story, if you, if you want to tell what your, what's your involvement in Soweto, in Musini, in Kimberley and so forth, you know, this would be a perfect platform to, to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it, and it sort of raises the profile of the 
Abel Margareza as well, doesn't it? Because, I mean, if, if somebody's got, you know, a nicely branded cart, it, it gives it a little bit of pride. I mean, they're not just bin pickers now, they're actually doing something. Are you finding that more more guys and women as well, I guess, are, are coming on board to, to join your organisation? Sorry, I'm, I'm, I didn't get that, sorry. Okay. Now, just to say, is it encouraging more people to come along and be the hustlers to, to do the collecting and the recycling? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, for sure. Um, currently, there's, yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a huge number of, of, of recyc- uh, reclaimers or Abu Mahareza mm. uh, in place. Uh, but the thing is, we want to create an environment where um, guys are enticed to come into the, into the whole project and just be involved in the whole recycling project. Um, so and and us giving free cards to the reclaimers, we, and also other social em- elements attached to the entire project. We believe that you know we're going to create a situation where people come on board, um, and also want to be part of the whole recycling mm-hmm. community. Um, I, yeah, yeah, don't, so yeah. No, it sounds really good. I mean, I think you could probably franchise it at, in um, you know all over the country. I think it's a brilliant idea. If anybody wants to sign up, have you got a website, or is there any way that people can reach you? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, currently, uh, we have uh, our website at unconventionalmedia.co.za. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we are working on um, a different number of uh, social media platforms in okay. terms of just to promote the project. Uh, it's called. Uh, we trying to get into Instagram. Um, um, what do you call it? Uh, and also Tumblr, Instagram. Yeah, Twitter and so forth. Okay. So we're trying to launch that in the next few days. Uh, but for now, they can get my details in terms uh, on unconventional uh, media okay. solutions. But uh, brilliant. Well, keep at it because it sounds like an absolutely brilliant idea. Thanks very much, Sifiso, and enjoy the rest of the Amapico course. Thank you. No, 100%. Thank you, thank you so much for the platform. Thanks, and uh, if, one, if anyone wants to give, get involved, just give me a shout or on 0843 um, Go to the website um, and see how you can contribute to other projects. We'll do it. Sifiso Ngobezi, thank you very much. Unconventionalmedia.co.za. He's uh, soon to be on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Otherwise, if you want to give him a call, he did give out his number. It's 0842-830-828. Well, finally, and uh, isn't that wonderful? I've learned this new world, which is Abel Magareza, which means hustler. There you go. Well, finally, on the show tonight, a green goodie. And don't forget, the green goodie is your moment. If you want to tell us about what you're doing that's making a difference, um, rather like Safiso is, pop us a mail. We're at enviro at safm.co.za. Or you can find us on Facebook, which is the Enviro Show on SAFM. But our green goodie for tonight is about biodegradable food packaging and takeaway containers. All those plates and cutlery. In fact, I was at Taste of Cape Town just the other day. And sure enough, all their, um, all their cutlery and their plates and containers were biodegradable. Well, Catherine Morris has made this her speciality. She's got a business called Green Home. We got her on the line. Hi, Catherine. Yes, Hi. Nice to have you with us. Thanks. So how, how come you're doing this? How did you get involved with biodegradable packaging and biodegradable disposable plates, etc.? Um, well, uh, quite randomly, actually. Um, I saw the product when I was overseas um, in 2006 in uh, Thailand. Mm-hmm. Quite, quite the accident. I saw a very similar-looking product made from tapioca starch. And it was in a natural history museum, and it just had a small sign underneath it saying, alternative to polystyrene. And when I saw the 
when I saw the concept, I just... Uh, you had an quite, aha moment. Yes, I, had, I was quite overwhelmed by, you know, if this can exist, why doesn't it? Yeah. You know, why isn't it more accessible? So, yeah, I took a picture of it and it just got my mind going. And then when I came back to South Africa, um, I just started doing a bit of research and, yeah, quit my job and... Uh, put everything I had into starting the business. Great, great. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's a wonderful story. That tapioca starch uh, prototype that you saw, was it in production or was it something that they used long ago? I didn't see it, no. I, I didn't see it on the uh, street. So I think it was uh, something that was, uh, yeah, just used, kind of made as a, yeah. yeah. So now are you using tapioca starch? I, I think you're using something called bagasse? Yes, bagasse. So mm. uh, the, main, the main raw material that we use is um, bagasse, which is a waste product of uh, sugar cane. Mm. So once the sugar has been extracted from the cane, the leftover material is um, bagasse. And then, yeah, that fiber is pressed and molded into plates and bowls and burger boxes, etc. And, and actually looks quite stylish. Yes, you said that you saw that um, taste. Yeah. Yeah, which was great. Was, was that yours? Yes. That oh, was, great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just it looks just a little bit more classy than polystyrene, yeah. um, without wishing to diss polystyrene because it yeah. has its own attributes, but it's just a little nicer. So you are creating the moulds. Is it all produced here in South Africa? Is it, is it a very expensive um, product? And that, that bagasse, is it easy to get hold of? Um. Well, okay, well, to get back to your first point about looking stylish, um, it's, that it's you know, when I first started the, the company, I had to really explain a lot about the product in terms of its environmental advantages. Mm. But, um, yeah, the, the, I think what's, what's taking it off now is the fact that it just works, uh, it works a lot better than, yeah, what's out there already, especially polystyrene. So just, so just how environmentally friendly is it? How long does it take to biodegrade? Well, it's, it's considered green waste, so it'll take as long to biodegrade as, um, as all of the other green waste. So, um, yeah, there's, there's basically three different um, categories. You get degradable and biodegradable and compostable. So degradable just means that it will break down into small components, and biodegradable means that it's breaks down into CO2, water, and compost. And then compostable is the same thing as biodegradable, except it does it in a shorter time span. So all of our products are compostable. Okay, good. So you can sort of put it in your garden and eventually it will break down. But you're producing it locally, aren't you? Some's produced locally and some isn't. Um, so, yeah, it's a... But the bagasse comes from South Africa? No, it doesn't. It's a, um, it's quite a, it's quite a big challenge actually. Mm. You know, when we, we, we don't we have enough sugarcane here? Gosh. Yeah, we sh we definitely do. Mm. Um, when we when I started the company eight years ago, um, we immediately started looking into local manufacture. Mm. But um, yeah, and, and we we have actually made some headway, but it's uh, it's not it's not an easy 
it's not an easy thing to do. It feels like a, a, an obvious one for KZN, where they've got you know, yeah. sugar cane from here till tomorrow. Yeah. We're going to have to leave it at that, Catherine, sadly, but I'm going to give out your website if anybody would like to know more. And We haven't even got onto the food packaging, but perhaps another day. But they can find all your products on greenhome.co.za. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Catherine Morris, and uh, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about that Bagasso-based, um, biodegradable, in fact, compostable uh, products, you can check the site, once again, greenhome.co.za. Well, that's it, once again, but uh, guess what? I'm slightly on time this time. Thanks very much, Jean. That's Kim Winter and Garnet and Quinica, and I'm Nancy Richards, and standing by is Stephen Kirker. Hi, Sli- Stephen. Slightly on time. I'm going to remember that one. That's <laughs> Are you impressed? I'm, I'm, ve- I'm very, <laughs> very impressed. Who knew? You know, the whole thing, Nancy, is a whole bunch of these solutions people talk about every week. If they were rolled out, uh, you know, across the country, across the world, how different the world would be. Anyway, small steps, uh, one at a time. Check them out in the Enviro Show on Thursday night. And don't forget to join Nancy as well on Sunday for Literary Matters. Uh, Just gone 10 o'clock, yes, slightly. And uh, it is uh, now time for SFM's Nighttime Music. But first, though, it is news time.